0: Are you ready to take your leadership and your organization to the next level and beyond? Your competitors will be there before you know it. Today's leaders must perpetually innovate, evolve, and grow faster than the competition. Welcome to Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations with Maureen Metcalf. In the next hour, you'll meet innovative leaders who have become successful at the helm of some of the most respected organizations in the world, and you can become the next big success story. Now, here's your host, Maureen Metcalf.
1: Hi, welcome to Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations. I'm your host, Maureen Metcalf. I'm the founder and CEO of Metcalf & Associates. I work with leaders and their organizations to identify the trends that will most likely disrupt their business and develop business strategies and business and leadership practices to leverage these trends to create strategic advantage in sustainable organizations. I'm a regular contributor to Forbes and the lead author on an award-winning book series focusing on innovating how you lead and transforming your organization. I'm also an adjunct faculty member in universities in the U.S. and Germany. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Artie Isaac. Internationally, Artie Isaac facilitates corporate brainstorming and idea generation programs to develop new products and expand productivity. In central Ohio, in the U.S., he convenes six CEO peer groups with Vistage Worldwide, the world's leading chief executive organization. He holds degrees from Yale, a B.A. in English, and Columbia, an MBA, and has certifications in coaching and Myers-Briggs Type Indicator, EQ, 2.0 and EQ360. And we'll give his contact information at the end of this discussion. So this show and the purpose, as we think about the rate of change we're facing in our world today, it is accelerating by the day. So think that today is the slowest day you're going to experience over the rest of your business career. And putting that in perspective, the question is, especially as leaders and emerging leaders, what do you need to know and continue to refine in your thinking to ensure that your organization's continue to remain successful and that you as a leader don't become obsolete so we talk about don't be the flip phone of leadership as an analogy to what happens with leaders who are working hard but not updating themselves as leaders so on this show, we've talked about leader development from many different angles. We haven't yet talked about peer groups and how highly effective they are at building skills of leaders, especially senior executives who don't hear the truth necessarily from their people in their organization. So Artie's purpose in his interactions is that all people can find their way to a group of peers, because in business, family, and geopolitically, people are at their best when they regularly receive. The Caring Challenge of Peers. So welcome, Artie. It's great to have you with us. Thank you, Maureen. Is there anything else you want to tell us about yourself before we jump into the idea of peer leadership?
2: Well, I heard your opening comments, and the first thing I want to say is that the idea that we're accelerating faster and faster every day, when you said that, and I I don't doubt that is a way to describe what's going on, but I had an almost physical reaction to it. It made me uh, both sad and, and a little bit angry. I'm going the other direction. i'm I'm moving more slowly and finding that to be probably the best way to react to a world that's already going so fast that it's not possible as individuals to speed up. So anyone who wants to learn how to speed up might want to uh, fast forward through this interview
1: <laughs> well, so the question is, how do we cope with a world around us that's accelerating? And it'd be great if you would share how you are able to navigate slowing down as the world accelerates. Because I think a lot of people are facing the challenge of, I can't go any faster.
2: Right. Well, so if we can't go any faster, trying to go faster is probably not going to work. We've got to go slower or the same speed. This is all very conceptual. I want to suggest that anything I say about what has worked for me has to be seen through the lens of my enormous privilege. It's easy for me to say a lot of the things that I will say that would require courage of other people. I have uh, I have every privilege in this world. And so so what do I do? I I acknowledge that I can only go so fast for so long and that I am truly of more value to those around me and to myself, and I can achieve greater satisfaction and joy through conscious attempts to slow down. So an example, and I I heard this somewhere else. I might have heard this from Jim Collins when he spoke somewhere. No, I heard it from Steve Anderson, a a local coach here in town Mm -hmm. with Leadership leadership Systems. He has a name, ILS. ILS. Integrated
1: Leadership. Leadership.
2: Leadership Systems, right. So Steve Anderson was my first coach, and he said to me that I needed to spend a half an hour a day in a quiet chair a quiet place in a comfy chair with no interruptions, no cell phone, no dog, because we're not alone when we're with a dog, alone in that chair for a half an hour. And I I came back to him for my weekly visit a week later and, I, and he said, did you do it? And I said, no. And so the next week he said, did you do it? And I said, no. And he said, why haven't you done this? And I said, uh, I'm afraid that if I sit quietly with nobody else to interact with, not even a dog, I'm afraid there won't be anyone there. Hmm. And what he said was, I assure you there will be someone there. He laughed. I said, well, how do you know? What's the proof? He said, well, you're here right now. He says that highly functional people spend a half an hour a day in quiet, in solitude, still. And I worry that we have everyone so cranked up On caffeine and dopamine that that they'll never slow down enough to reflect on what they're doing they'll be doing well what is not important to them
1: and I want to jump in at this point and say I'm a regular meditator
2: oh yeah me too
1: so and I live alone my dog is often with me yeah but often at least once a day I take quiet time it's the only way I'm able to stay sane and so that uh, as we talk about accelerating, you and I probably have a similar approach to step back, take a breath, and reflect quietly on what I aspire, what I what I want to release. Where am I going? How am I investing the precious moments I have in this life?
2: So, yes, I, I have a meditation practice, too. I started when I was 15, so I've been doing it for 42 years as I'm 57 now, and, and, and I find that when I challenge people's notion of busyness and uh, acceleration, that sometimes they quietly say to me, as, as you just have, you know, by the way, I do have a meditation practice and, and you know, the sitting practice keeps me sane. And I realize how radical, how revolutionary it is for people to do nothing. As the Maharishi Mahesh Yogi said, when we are meditating, we are not trying to do much. And that is uh, that's a revolutionary action. And so I sometimes think we we give the message to people that busyness is right. People come up to me and they say, "Hey, how are you?" And I'll say, "I'm good." And they'll say, "Crazy busy." And I'll say, "You know, which of those two words am I supposed to enjoy hearing? <laughs> uh, crazy, maybe, you know, but not not you know with genuine mental illness. Uh, thank goodness. But busy is a word that I really have resisted. I am not. Mm-hmm. I am not busy.
1: So, if you don't describe yourself as busy for our listeners, how do you describe yourself? You know, you're re- productive.
2: Yeah, recently, and I, this uh, this is a a conversation I had in confidence, but I think I can say the following words: a person was talking about working too hard, and I hear this from a lot a lot mm-hmm. of people, and so do you. We all do. I mean, that that's the nature of the American culture right now. Those of us that have you know the opportunity and the privilege of work. And the person said, I really need to figure out how to disconnect. And I started counting the times, the number of times the person used the word disconnect. I need to disconnect. I need to, you know, I have have these moments where I disconnect. And so my answer to busy is that I don't seek to disconnect. I seek to connect. I am never seeking to disconnect. I am seeking to connect with people, to be here with you now Mm -hmm. in genuine Relationship, rather than disconnecting from something else. I, I just don't seek to. And I, so when I when I go into long walks in the in the Grand Canyon, I've had the privilege to do that several times and have another one on the calendar. I am not seeking to disconnect. And people talk about, oh, you don't have internet down there and there's no there's no email. They see the disconnection where I see the connection with nature and my and my fellow travelers.
1: I like the the shift. I'm also a hiker and I spend a lot of time in Sedona. Beautiful place. It's gorgeous. And to your point, while I do check email in the evenings, I am more connected to the bigger natural world, which in reality we are never apart from. We're in our houses and our cars, but we are part of that. And yet that sense that we are apart and separate is part of what I think leads to the truly crazy mental illness piece and the lack of resilience that often as business leaders, if I don't feel that connection to something bigger than myself, I can make decisions that are suboptimal long-term.
2: I missed a connection of a flight in Dallas last week. It was too close a connection, and there was somebody else who missed the same connection to Columbus, and I heard him at the counter. He, he was there first, and he said that he was uh, he was going to fly to Dayton and then Uber or Lyft to, uh, to Columbus, and I said, I'll, I'll share that with you. He said, okay, that'd be great. And uh, I said, "My name's Artie," and he said, "My name's Yarimer." And I realized, "Oh, oh. my gosh, this is Yarimer Steiner." Mm-hmm. And I looked at him. I said, "Oh, I know you." He gave a speech when he was building Easton, the the local here in Columbus town center, revolutionary in its time for being an outdoor shopping place and and town center, not a mall. At the same time, the the last mall in America was being built just down the road, and people were asking him way back when, they said, why, why are you building this outdoors? And, he, and he, so he asked the audience that he was speaking to, and I was lucky enough to be in that audience. He said, I want everyone to close their eyes and imagine the most beautiful place they've ever been. See it in your mind's eye, walk through it, where are you, imagine who you're with, what does it feel like? He said, okay, now open your eyes, and 95% of you have been thinking of a place that was outside, Sure, 5% of you might be thinking of our our great cathedrals or museums or, for that matter, universities like Ohio State. But most of you thought of outside. That moment completely changed my life. That was Hmm. 15 or 20 years ago, and I ever since have been uh, finding myself outside.
1: I actually ran a nature preserve for a while because it was the place I went to during the biggest transitions of my life. I'm divorced. It was my husband and I went there to talk about terminating our marriage, and it was two-day discussion. When I changed jobs, I spent... When I started my company, I spent three months. It started with two days a week and ended up being six days a week in a small cabin with no running water and no amenities, so composting toilets, and that probably sounds crazy to a lot of people. But it was my opportunity to reconnect with who am i and what what is my life about and i personally do that in conjunction with nature and i'm guessing when yarimer was was talking nobody in the group imagined a shopping mall traditional right all of america kind of right. place you're unless you're a 16 year old girl
2: did you and i'm not um <laughs> Did you say you ran a nature preserve? I did. So what that made me think of was uh, a teaching of Roger Tory Peterson, one of the great well, the great, the Jacques Cousteau of, of Above Water, an American mm-hmm. naturalist. And he said that you don't have to go far to go into nature. Just go into the, into the yard. Go, go outside and take one square yard or one square foot and look, look at the ground and look where you are and look up. And that will be enough of nature. And it made me think when you said that you ran a nature preserve that we all, marine, we all run a nature preserve right it might be as small as a as a window box but we all run a nature preserve and we need to see ourselves right now as all of us running a nature preserve
1: i like that perspective at that point i considered buying a place out in the woods and i ended up moving out of my downtown condo and into a house with a very small yard very small house because it gave me the freedom of not tending to too much mm-hmm. but off a ravine so I have, you talk about privilege, I have the privilege of walking in a ravine every day. Yeah. Every day that I'm in town, anyway. And it does allow me back to that, how do I stay centered? How do I keep my focus when things around me are spinning, aging parents, all the things that many of our listeners are dealing with, aging ourselves, and businesses that are experiencing unexpected shocks because the world's changing. right? And And
2: so we get back to your theme of acceleration and what to do about it.
1: Well, and what I hear from you, and I realize we're not talking about peer (laughs) groups, but this is... Isn't that funny? I think it's a really important conversation. Those of us who are coaching others, advising others, uh, running peer groups, how do we manage in this kind of time? And often we're talking to others about their experience, we're not sharing ours. Because we're often, as coaches and consultants, expected to be present for other people and present to their experience, when, which can, at least for me, often means I don't talk about what I'm doing.
2: So I, I've been brought up in my coaching education through the Gestalt practice, uh, the Gestalt Center of Cleveland. Nothing says Gestalt like Cleveland. And, <laughs> and I find that, that I do reveal much about myself. I don't want to make it about me, but I do want to make it about us. I don't want to presume that my experience in, in chatting with my coaching client is irrelevant to what's going on for the coaching client. You know, if I feel something or a thought occurs to me. So I have the, uh, the attribute of low impulse control. which I think we're experiencing now. And I I find that that's... People come to me, I think, for two reasons. One, they want low impulse control. They want me to simply say what is on my mind or my heart. But they also want me to be at least tied for most adult in the room. I don't think they want to show up and find me in that frenetic busyness. Mm -hmm.
1: And I would say similar of mine. I share some, but I try to make it not about me. And... I have also learned from my being the person getting coaching that it was helpful to know my coach wasn't perfect, because otherwise I'm performing, not getting coaching.
2: In my best coaching uh, sessions, I will save the last 10 or 15 minutes of a 90-minute or or two-hour session and ask the the coaching client to coach me. I always like to turn the tables. I want them to learn the skills of a coach. I want them... And and so, I will talk to them on the meta level about how they're coaching me, sticking to questions and wonderment and not setting the agenda or giving too much advice but i I find that I get coached by everybody by simply asking for it.
1: I love that I get coached, but I'm not sure I always ask for it
2: um. <laughs> That sounds like assault i'm sorry to sorry to say, <laughs> hopefully not.
1: So on that note, we're going to go on break. We'll be right back with Artie Isaacs, Maureen Metcalf, talking about peer coaching and having a genuine discussion about who we are and how we are navigating the pace of life right now.
0: visit Metcalf-Associates.com. Maureen and her associates are ready to discuss your needs and tailor a solution to meet your goals. Move forward with Metcalf and Associates. Visit Metcalf-Associates.com
3: today.
1: And we're going to shift gears and talk now about peer leadership development. So, Artie, you could do a lot of things in the world, and you have. Why are you now doing work with these six CEO groups?
2: Right now, I'm doing it because I love it. I think it's an honor, and it's, it's a constant surprise and delight to watch highly ambitious, thoughtful, intelligent, caring, increasingly enlightened employers challenge each other's blind spots and, and assumptions. It's amazing to watch these people sit in a room together and take off their mask and say, here's, here's what I don't know. The reason I did it originally is uh, I was once in a peer group when I, when I had a company, and it's a little melodramatic to say it saved my life, but it certainly centered me at a time when, when I, my life was changing dramatically, and it was enormously helpful. I was running that peer group at the time as a volunteer, and when I sold my company in 2008, I found that this organization, Vistage, thought that I might be good at leading peer groups, and so they invited me to do so. That's how I got into it. But the reason I do it right now is it's a wonderful way to spend the day. It's almost uh, transcendent to allow myself to bring the thing the person most wants What the group most wants. What they most want from me right now is my wonderment. What What, is confusing?
1: What is wonderment to you? I think it's a word that not everyone, especially international listeners, for whom English isn't the first language. What does that mean?
2: Sure. So wonderment uh, is the act of wondering, the act of of being curious, of not knowing. For so much of my career, I was a consultant in marketing and, and other things, and I was paid and valued based on the advice I gave and so I developed a capacity for knowing and being able to tell someone try this or do this is the manifestation of of knowing wonderment is uh is reliance in a confident way on not knowing raising questions that I do not know the answers to rather than those questions that we sometimes ask people that lead them in the direction we think they ought to go
1: I talk a lot about leaders taking on the mind of the scientist. And so scientists have questions, and we don't have answers. We have hypotheses, and we have Mm -hmm. directions. And I wonder if that is one of the foundational elements, if wonderment is one of the foundational elements to good scientists.
2: I love that. Uh, I think of my peer groups as, uh, each of them is a test kitchen for the half-baked. (laughs) <laughs> the idea that, you know, an entrepreneur or a business owner, or a CEO, key executive would come to the table and say, you know, I've thought through this, but only so far. And as in a test kitchen where recipes are, are tried and ingredients and methods are shifted for better outcomes, you need a, a, a safe space. You need a place where there are other expert bakers or uh, cooks, chefs. And so I like assembling groups of people that are expert and confident in their own skills but they do throw out that hypothesis and they are openly as in the scientific process willing to say here's what i don't know well, that's one exercise that I, I recommend for your listeners and i recommend for everybody and i and i, and I do it myself as i as i keep a list of things i don't know i learned this from a business partner rob Emmerich, years ago Rob and I started a business and we, and we kept a list of things we didn't know on a big whiteboard. And we showed everybody. We told everybody. And people would say, oh, I can help you with that. And the list would shrink and the list would grow because there are always things we don't know. But so many of us are afraid ever saying what we don't know because it might reduce someone else's estimation of our competence.
1: Especially when we trade as our value having the answers.
2: Right. So I had to give up the idea of knowing. So I'll sit with somebody, and they all know I do this because I tell them about it. But if someone says, you know, I'll say, well, "Gee, what's your, what's your biggest challenge? And the person might say, well, you know, I don't know what to do with my, my vice president of sales. And uh, I'll say, well, what do you think you ought to do? And the person will very often say, I don't know. And by the time they say the word no, by the time they say, I don't know, I've already got two or three ideas in my head hold the person accountable, have some goals on the wall, incentive, uh, things like that. But instead of that, when they say, I don't know, I ask them, well, what would it be if you did know? Hmm. And much to my surprise, I've said this to a lot of smart people who are not only smarter than I am, but they're bigger, and none of them have hit me. And I find that surprising because they pay good money for that ridiculous question. But when I ask, well, what would it be if you did know? I find that they have two or three great answers, much better than the ones I had loaded in the chamber. They're ready. People have the answers within them. And really what they need is someone who's simply wondering aloud, well, what would you do if you did know what to do? That's a case of wondering.
1: I love the the illustration and concrete example, because it helps people recognize not only the word wondering, but the power in trusting yourself as the recipient of coaching that I can find the answer in some cases. In some cases, you probably do offer guidance as well.
2: I try not to. That's not when they're getting their best from me. If that person doesn't know how to handle the vice president of sales, I'm likely unable to help. Here's a case where, if you like specifics, this is a case where, I, where my incompetence is truly on display. Sometimes I'm talking with a, a coaching client or a member of one of my peer groups who might be having a side conversation, and the person might say something, and I find that I'm daydreaming and I'm not listening, and I've gone away. And I realize, oh my gosh, their lips are moving, and I feel that peculiar wind, and, and, and I missed what they said. I learned this from a pro. I said, could you tell me that in a different way? But I told all my clients that if I ever say that, it means I wasn't listening. I'm just going to tell you that because I don't want to pretend it's something else. But now, recently, that happened. And I said to somebody, gosh, when you were just talking, I wasn't listening. I went away. Where else does that happen in your life? Who else appears to be listening to you but isn't? And it was truly based on wonderment because I don't believe I'm the only one that doesn't listen to this person. It's (laughs) got to be chronic. And it led into a really great conversation about home life.
1: Hmm. I was going to say when when you say that there are people I consistently listen to, and there are people I consistently phase out with.
2: Right, and so you got to wonder. So if we don't ever stop and wonder why that's happening, then what we start to think is, oh, I'm I'm incompetent at listening, or they start to think they're incompetent at holding my attention. But that's never going to work. We need, to, we need to wonder, why is this happening? And so I, I'm getting better and better. But boy, it's taken a long time. And I'm not, I'm not really expert at wondering yet.
1: Yeah, you know, I wonder the connection between the meditation and the ability to stay in a space of wonderment and connection.
2: They're both radical. They're both departures from demonstrations of competence. I mean, there's nothing more incompetent than sitting and doing nothing. I mean, come on, that's the best you got, and there's nothing, and there's nothing more incompetent than than wondering aloud. Hey, you know, Maureen, this is what perplexes me. Or gee, I, I'm really confused, and constantly focusing on what I don't know. What incompetence, rank incompetence. But what it, what these do is bring out the best in people, so it's worth it, and it's fun, and it's really easy. There's no preparation.
1: I need to do more of this and less of what I'm doing, probably. <laughs> So what have you seen that is most effective in these groups and why?
2: So in these peer groups, there are a dozen to 18 people who get together for the better part of a day. And they call this a day on their business or on their life rather than in it. It's on the calendar. They know they're going to get to the meta level. They're going to get above Mm -hmm. their lives and look at it. What works best I'm not big on preparation. I think it's fine if they just show up with an open mind and the ability to shut out the outside noise. What works best is caring, engagement, the willingness to speak up. We have a rule that silence equals acceptance. So if someone says something that you don't agree with and you don't say anything, it was your vote of confidence in what you just heard. Now, this is not Mm -hmm. completely fair to the introverts who like to process a little bit, but, but we know that there's no time deadline either. They can come back later. Mm -hmm. What works well? My role modeling vulnerability works well. People need to see that I'm not kidding when I say we're going to put our biggest confusions on the table or our biggest ambitions or our biggest opportunities and challenges. If our listeners today can imagine that life is a spectrum of events from the really great on one side to the really bad on the other side. Now in the middle is a lot of middle stuff. A lot of the experiences we have are in the middle. And those are the things we can talk about with anybody. We can talk about it to our beloved or to our trusted advisors or the people we work with, our friends. But on the far right side, in the way I draw it, is the 5% best stuff of life. And on the far left side, the way I draw it, is the 5% worst stuff happening right now. That's what I like our groups to talk about. I don't like them to talk about the middle stuff. They took a nice hike in the Grand Canyon or Sedona. That's great. But you know what? Let's save that for the lunch hour. Let's focus on the top 5%, bottom 5%. If I can get people to feel they can do that, then we have really deep conversations. I've, I've become completely unable to have small talk.
1: You and I share that quality. Probably I'm no fun at a party. Probably. <laughs> So when someone brings up the worst, the most challenging. Yes. Which is also in many cases the biggest growth and development opportunity. Right. What does that look like in the group? How does the group navigate through because many people are uncomfortable exploring heartbreak or right. loss of a family member or And this stuff happens. Conditions.
2: All this stuff happens. I mean, people show up thinking they've joined a business peer group and they find <laughs> out that it's a leadership peer group, and, and, and what stops a leader in his or her tracks at any point uh, can, be, can be anything. Well, one thing is we, we try not to judge, we try not to assess, we try not to leap to solutions, and so we spend a good long time just asking open-ended questions, truly questions of wonderment, not questions that are really masking suggestions, not questions that are who, what, when, and mm-hmm. you know, not the journalist's question. We're, we're asking questions that are truly born in not knowing, We spend a good long time doing that. We also are respecting the other person's situation and challenge. Here's an example. Sometimes I call it when the strong person goes silent. You'll be sitting at the table and a person will be describing a challenge. And mid-sentence, mid-breath, that person goes silent. And you might glance down the table to take a look and see what happened. And the person is there and they're staring off into space and they're They're transcending the moment's conversation. Something's happened, some sort of aha. It might be emotion. It might be thought. We don't know. Maybe there's tears. Maybe not. What I've trained the groups to do, or frankly, to not do, is not to rescue the person, not to say they're there, not to offer Kleenex, not to say you can do it, or, you know, I'm with you. They sit in in respectful silence. And this is a hard thing for people to learn because our intention is to, is to help people and to rescue them because, well, frankly, we don't care that to rescue them. We're rescuing ourselves from what seems like an awkwardness in the room. And so when we run to someone else's aid, we're really just trying to resolve the tension in the room. But in that moment, we are in what Wilfred Bion in the early 20th century called work mode. Non-work mode is where we puncture that moment with there, there. And so we'll sit quietly, and we will know that that person may be having an experience that they can't have anywhere else, and this may, in fact, be the only place in this person's life where they can experience a true moment of self-awareness or emotion. So it's different than polite society.
1: You know, as you describe it, I do this in my graduate classes, and the one that just ended, we had a person who was diagnosed with a serious heart condition. Mm and we had we did have tears in the class and right. we had people in this group happened to be probably more uniquely than some in a position of, of being more open and one shared a um some issues with addiction it was beautiful to experience them sharing it with the bigger group most of them will share that stuff with me but they don't always share it with the group and in the final presentation the gentleman with the heart condition shared you know not only the reporting of i had an appointment but then very tearfully just said i'm scared right you know i thought i was young and healthy and had a very long life ahead of me and now i may not and it's a just a precious time to be able to sit with and witness and no amount of there there it's okay will address what he's going through at that moment
2: and they're there it's it's going to be okay is uh what the nonviolent communication people the compassionate communication mm-hmm. people teach as an empathy blocker we're telling somebody stiff upper lip and, and you're going to be fine and you know what it's just not helpful. It, it kicks the can down the road and it sends the person back into. So I think of peer groups much like flying in an airplane where, and, you, and we've all had this experience. We're in an airplane and the airplane makes a sudden dip through turbulence. And we turn to the stranger next to us and we tell that person our story. And they tell us their story. A peer group is like that, except you're on the same plane every month, once a month, for a full day, for the rest of your life. I find that people are willing to engage deeply and more deeply with people who were initially strangers, because now we are co-journeyers.
1: I love that image, that having traveled every week for 12 years... Oh my... I spent a lot of time on airplanes and had a lot of really interesting conversations. Just fascinating. And some not so fascinating. I got to putting headphones on even if my batteries were dead.
2: I was going to say, that's why God invented headphones.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Yep. And yet there were times that I just felt compelled. The conversations were deep and insightful and meaningful and I can point to one that happened in my early 20s that changed me uh, meeting with someone who had gone through the Cultural Revolution in China and showed me the where the handcuffs had been on her arms and how she still had scars from Mm. those and it was phenomenal to hear her story and then read the book she had written about it so that idea that we could have those interactions that meaningfully on some regular basis, even but, if they don't always feel that way.
2: Well, yeah, Maureen, I think that's the natural state of humans. Humans have a natural inclination, a natural desire and capacity for deep sharing. You know, Susan Cain's book, Quiet, talks about how we became less substantial. It's a ode to introversion. This book by Susan Cain and her TED Talk that uh, that that brought it to us. You know, when we think of peer groups, all they really need, in addition to what we've already chatted about, is a sense of confidentiality, knowing that this won't go anywhere else. So as I recruit members, I test for confidentiality, and then they really do feel like this is a place where they can come to have their answers questioned.
1: I like that, to have their answers questioned, and I realized that was purposeful.
2: And not original.
1: Okay. <laughs> well, on that note, having your answers question, let's go on break. And we'll be back with Artie and Maureen again talking about peer groups, the value they bring, and how to construct them in a way that's useful.
0: visit Metcalf-Associates.com. Maureen and her associates are ready to discuss your needs and tailor a solution to meet your goals. Move forward with Metcalf and Associates. Visit Metcalf-Associates.com
3: today.
1: Welcome back to Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations. You're with Maureen Metcalf and Artie Isaac. And let's move now into the bigger question, and I don't know if it's ethics or what we call that, where we are bound as individuals, especially leaders of organizations, to expose ourselves to people questioning our thinking in a way that. Holds us true to our values, and we were talking about implicit bias to expose those things that we think we're staying true, but somebody else sees from us something that we may not be seeing.
2: Right, we've all got blind spots, and I believe the you know the bigger picture with regards to peer groups is that we all need one. Everybody needs a peer group, whether it's one I'm leading or not. Is you know that's immaterial. What we need is to be once in a while among our peers. If we are writers of children's literature, we need a a group of people to review our manuscripts and say, here's what I'm seeing. Is this what you were intending? Or what? I just see this choice here. Tell me about the choice you made. This has geopolitical implications. Any presidential administration, not solely the current presidential administration can be faulted for placing into a cocoon the leader. The leader ends up in a bubble very quickly uh, just because of security concerns, but they end up being quarantined. And and I'm just going to say this, that people that are not challenged and questioned by others who they consider to be their peers end up either as creative geniuses or as despots and dictators. I, for one, am not headed for creative genius or despot dictator. And it's because I've got people who question me all the time. Tell me about that choice you just made. Was that your intention?
1: You and I have constructed similar lives in that way. I joke that I want to hear you're brilliant and everything you do is perfect. But with the people I choose, they're not going to say that. They are going to point out the flaws... In my thinking or what I've missed and that makes my life richer and it certainly makes me more effective it is what I've constructed it'd still be nice to hear occasionally I'm perfect but oh you're not real you're nearly perfect <laughs> oh, thank you <laughs> you may be the only person in my life that says yeah, j- that but to your point of of the importance of especially for leaders who hold the fate of the families who who seek their livelihood from their organizations, right, to be untrue, even if accidental, that's a big responsibility. And to not seek wise counsel, not counsel from everyone, but wise counsel.
2: That's funny. Uh, you choose the word wise. I had lunch with someone today, and and we were asking about asking each other, you know, well, what is wisdom? What is it? And and his answer, it was great. He said, "It's when your gut." is 80 uh, percent right and he he was funny about that because he, he wasn't sure that he was yet at 50 percent <laughs> yeah you know for me so if so if someone wants me to be wise i will go to wondering because i believe that you know the the vision of the guru on the mountain who simply asks you in return well what is the meaning of life and why did you climb up here Uh, And what did you think I was going to say? And how would my answer change your opinion? And uh, if you had the answer, you know, what would you do then? I I genuinely believe that questions are more powerful than answers.
1: When I said wisdom and those who have it, I immediately had the reaction to that doesn't mean the smartest person in the room.
2: No, no, you, you only need one smartest person in the room. The rest really have to be actively wondering. That's part of what happens in a peer group, too, is not only – we've been talking about the person who gets his or her answers questioned, but everyone else is playing the game at the same time. Mm -hmm. They're trying to figure out how not to know the answer to that person's question and to stay in an open sense of wonderment. Because any one person's challenge, any one person's opportunity, it's not universal, but we all share a slice of each other's challenges and opportunities.
1: I was just thinking of my experience being in groups. I just finished a, another master's program. Congratulations. And, thank you. <laughs> and we spent a lot of time in community. And it seemed like often when someone would bring something up, I immediately went to, oh my God, I've got that problem too. And right. I, so I was in some cases less present for them because I was on my own little hamster wheel thinking about... What can I learn from this?
2: I was co-chairing a group with a local sensation here, a national sensation in pricing strategy. Her name is Casey Brown. She and I were co-chairing a, a peer group for a year. And she said at one point, there are so many issues. How do we, There are so many different issues that people bring to this table. And we laughed because we figured out there really are only two issues. What am I going to do with my time? And what am I going to do with these people? There really isn't, there isn't a third issue. Everything is a version of one of those two.
1: You know, it's funny when I teach leadership, occasionally someone will say, this is all about self-awareness. When are you going to teach me when to, how to lead?
2: Oh, that's funny. Right. Yeah, well, you're right. getting closer. <laughs> Keep asking that question. You're so close. <laughs> that's so
1: close, right? It is. But, but it comes across, what they're conveying is I came in here for the checklist. Right. And you're withholding it. And you're giving me all this other psychobabble stuff. Just give me the darn checklist so I can go off and be a leader.
2: That happened to me when Steve Anderson was was coaching me at Integrated Leadership Systems. I asked him, I said, am I supposed to this is many years ago. I said, am I supposed to close my company and and do something else and he looked at me and said, what do you mean? I said, well, am I supposed to do that? He said, you're like a guy who wants to have a cord of chopped wood, right? A big stack of chopped wood, and you want me to tell you what it looks like and and how it how it is stacked because you want a, a cord of chopped wood. He said, I can't tell you that. He said, all I can help you do is fall in love with the chopping. And I really like that. And so you're you're a person who really wants to figure out, you know, what does leadership look like? I'm bored with self-awareness. All right, I'm too self-aware now. What do I do for leadership? <laughs> the, all they can do is fall in love with the chopping, getting there, because nobody ever gets
1: there. Well, and the humans that they're leading, when we fall in love with the humans that we're leading... right. Even though they're messy and complicated and frustrating, that's a big part of the journey for me.
2: Yeah, great leaders come to leadership reluctantly. And those that do not come to it reluctantly, are I have trouble trusting them.
1: Many of us are looking for the back door out.
2: Right, right. Because we don't feel loved by that leader.
1: No, I was thinking as leaders, we're looking for the door out. Oh, it's right. it's hard.
2: Well, it's hard if the model of leadership is knowing. If the model of leadership is not knowing, as long as we can subvert our egos which is not easy. As long as we could subvert our massive ego, then uh, then there is an opportunity. Leadership is a stance. It's not a series of methods, it's not a, an algorithm. It's the way we stand in this world.
1: I like that. So, as we're coming closer to the end, describe your stance.
2: Well, it's light. Physically people see me sometimes standing on one leg. I'm not trained in yoga. I think I'm closer to the bird family. I'm trying to be light in the room. My stance is grounded in the present moment, best I can. I don't claim to be a Buddhist, but I do claim to be an improviser, improvisational actor of some sort. My stance is is grounded in language. I believe that the words people use are the words they've chosen to the best of their ability, and I want to find out a little more about how they got chosen. My stance is in caring and compassion. I'm standing beside the people I'm working with, not not in front of them.
1: For me, when I say leadership is hard, that's part of what's hard. As I care and people are going through massive challenges, it's difficult to stay present to everything that is happening when people are struggling. And yet that's required for them to truly bring their best. I need to be present and see their best when they don't.
2: Mm, Right.
1: It's easy when someone stumbles for each of us. I, I look in the mirror and I see everything I've done wrong. So having someone who sees everything I've done right and yet can acknowledge that I'm struggling, not not the delusional you're fabulous, but the I see the possibilities, the real grounded possibilities, even though you don't see them in yourself today.
2: I don't know that I'm that generous. I, I was taught at the Gestalt Institute that one of my most common resistances is confluence. I conflue with the other person. I believe their story. And so I, I try very hard to doubt, but to doubt gently and respectfully, mm. but really very clearly that I'm not hearing the full story.
1: I like that. Probably if you put you and I together, we would be almost perfect. Right, right. That's- <laughs>
2: I'm have a full coach.
1: <laughs> okay, so on that note, how, how, do, how would someone find you or your groups if they want to learn more about your work?
2: Oh, that'd be great. So, Isaac, Artie Isaac, A-R-T-I-E-I-S-A-A-C, that's one S, two A's, dot com. And I think I just bought a bunch of URLs, like one is com because I think my approach is questionable
1: wonderful so at a minimum arty isaac.com
2: or questionable approach.com
1: okay so that is up and running now i think so okay just checking before we steer people there. i'm wondering <laughs> and i am maureen metcalf you can find me either email at info at metcalf-associates.com or on facebook innovative leaders driving thriving organizations i would love to hear your feedback for Artie or myself At the end of each show, I ask people to think of one thing that you've learned during this discussion and experiment with it. So that idea, the mind of the scientist, what questions will you ask yourself and what questions will you ask others instead of having answers? I would love to hear if you try this, how does that work for you or the the idea of meditation? What would it be like to sit for 30 minutes by yourself, even without a dog? Can so a key thought that,
2: that I got from from this, Maureen, is that connection between wonderment as a helpful competence and meditation. Two big parts of my life you brought together for me, and I'm I'm really grateful. Thank you.
1: Mm, thank you, Artie. And we look forward to hearing from you, our listeners. Have a nice week, and we'll talk to you next week.